Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 42 of the Corona Diaries. And uh, I am sat looking at Panthers 21 on screen. Because uh, yes. you've had a name change. Yes, it was a bit of confusion brought about by the family quiz um, where I was asked to log on to Panthers 21, but I logged on as Panthers 21. And now, being a bit of a technophobe, I can't be asked changing it. So I, I will remain Panthers 21 until somebody, probably Emil, changes it back for me. I think there's a whole personality here. I think you should get, get Panthers 21 on Instagram. I think it's a basketball team. Do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's certainly got nothing to do with a blusher brush, which is now what you're playing with. Change my name to... Meadowlark Lemon. I like that. <laughs> That's a great name, isn't it? Meadowlark Lemon. Yeah, he was in the Harlem Globetrotters in the 60s. He was their famous, you know, he was like six foot seven inches tall and used to score all of their, their hoops. That's a great they were, name. Man. They really were a thing when we were kids, the, the, the Globetrotters, weren't they? Yeah. It was a real big, big, big thing. Yeah, they were the bigger anymore. than sport. It's sort mm. of, they were showbiz, weren't they? Mm. Yeah. And they yeah. had their own little theme tune and, you know, they they did all of that showbiz in amongst that. Oh, and they there were in a Scooby-Doo cartoon as well. It, the, whole, the whole nine yards in a Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Doesn't get any bigger than that. No. Um, speaking of the family quiz, there's a little Ooh. bit of a link with the family quiz with this week's episode, um, because oh. the family quiz is where I first met the absolute love that is uh, Oren Hertz. Mm. But we're going to talk a little bit about Oren, because you were telling me a story about how you met Oren and how it then works its way into a lyric story. And because we were on lyrics last week and we said we'd do lyrics this week, it seemed nice to tie the two together. So... Um, so how did you meet Orin? Well, um, I'd written a song called Gaza, or the band had written a song, I'd written the lyric, and um, that was arguably the toughest piece of work that I've, I've ever embarked upon because having having started on that, that idea of a of a of a lyric about Gaza, um, I had a real moral dilemma, which was that I couldn't really write about Gaza without going there. You can't sit on a village green in England and write about the Gaza Strip with any authority if you've never been. Um, so I decided to go, and um, everybody said. No, you shouldn't, because um, first of all, you can't get in there without a visa, and if we manage to secure you a visa to get in, there's no guarantee that you'll get out in any kind of a hurry, because the security, um, you know, the the Israeli security is, is is so tight, and sometimes people are stuck in there for days and weeks um, whilst the security services stroke their beards and decide whether they're going to let you out. And we had a tour coming up. We, I think we've got some US dates coming up at that point. Um, Lucy knew a guy at the UN um, as well and made a few discreet inquiries uh, through through the United Nations and he said, don't let him go. <laughs> So, so everybody said, don't let him go. So 
then I had a, a dilemma, which was either not to write this song or to or, or, or to try and find out um, more about the situation on the ground because it's all very well watching TV documentaries and, and um, reading books, but you really need to speak to the people. Uh, and I had a friend called um, Diana in... Um, Spain, who had a friend who worked for an NGO there in in Gaza on the ground, and she connected me to her, and she then arranged for me to to Skype various Palestinians and Jews in 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 Gaza uh, to talk about the situation, what their daily life was like, and I. I sort of wrote out 20 questions that I asked everybody, you know, what do you smell when you walk down the street? What do you see? Yeah. Um, what are your frustrations? What what can you buy easily? What What is almost impossible to get hold of? Um, what, what, what are your feelings about your, your children and their chances and da-da-da-da-da? Um, do you hate? Do you hate the Jews? And I, w- I would ask the Jews if they hated the Palestinians, you know. Um, and and so I would I'd kind of tick these questions off everybody I spoke to. And it was from that really that I I drew what I thought was a real. Um, perspective of what life is actually like there and you know I I, I learned not that I needed to learn but I, I, I learned just how completely one-sided the balance of power is there I don't think I'd ever quite fully realised the extent to which you know, the Palestinians and Hamas, when they fire rockets into Israel, they're kind of homemade things that don't do a lot of damage. I mean, they can still kill someone if they land Mm -hmm. on top of their head, Um, but it's much more likely that they're going to blow the wing off a a parked car or something like that. And that um, Israel retaliates to attack like that with um, state-of-the-art smart weapons um, that kind of vaporise people. Mm. Um, And the, you know, the casualties in in, in every conflict between Israel and and the Palestinians have been anywhere between four to one or, or, or ten to one in terms of the 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 Palestinian deaths compared to the Israeli deaths, and just to give you an example, there was an operation called some people call it the Gaza War, Israel called it Operation Cast Lead, and it it took about three weeks between um, um, dis- December of two thousand and eight and January of two thousand and nine, during which. I mean, the estimates are on, um, vary, but between 1,100 and 1,400 Palestinians were killed. Um, and Israel, the Israeli deaths were 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, maybe 13. 13, four of which were friendly fire. So, you know, every death is a tragedy. But when you compare 14 to 1,400... That gives you an idea of of just yeah. um, of the balance of power in that part of the world, and most people don't understand that. I mean, it's easy to think, well, those those bloody Palestinians, you know, they're firing rockets at Israel, and Israel and Israel are retaliating, and that that is true. Mm. But no, I, I don't know if everybody realizes the scale upon which that's that's happening. Um. So anyway, I, I spoke to I spoke to a lot of you know Palestinians who were really lovely, lovely people. 
Uh, you know, and I'd say, do you do you hate the Israelis? Do you hate the Jews? And they go, oh no, no, some of my best friends are Jewish, and blah, blah. and that surprised me as well. Mm. Um, and then I I speak to um, Israelis and say, do you, do you hate the Palestinians? And they say, well, they hate us, they hate us. So the the Israeli um, the Israelis that I spoke to were of the opinion that the Palestinians hated them. And and and, and their, their foreign policy is built on that assumption. Mm. Um on you know, on one of persecution really. Um and to some extent who can blame them after after the Holocaust, which is still very, very fresh in the Jewish psyche, uh, like it happened last week. I mean, really, it, that that hasn't faded one jot um, from what I could from what I could see anyway. Mm. Um, and so there is this assumption, I think, that that um, the 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 Arab world wants Israel wiped off the face of the earth. And to be fair, that I think that is in the stated ob- objectives of of the the Hamas. You know, Hamas' declaration, uh, they don't acknowledge Israel's right to exist. Um, because of that, the, the, the road towards some kind of peace is, is, is very difficult mm-hmm. unless uh, Hamas can be removed from the equation. But, of course, the people of Gaza democratically voted Hamas in. But of course, the reason they voted Hamas in is because what else can they do but retaliate? Because they're they're currently living um, with what is effectively an apartheid system, with a wall around them, you know, an impenetrable wall. They can't work. They can't move. They can't take their children to hospital if if their kids get ill. They can't take them. Um, so that's really where Gaza came from um, I got as you can imagine I, I got I got a fair amount of criticism from um, interestingly from Jews who were not in Israel um, most of the flack I took well all of the flack I took were from um, were from from Jews in America and and in certain parts of Europe, but nobody in that region um, took took issue with what I'd said. Um, and I don't think that song is anti-Semitic. It's just a song about a kid growing up in a terrible situation that is intractable. Um, and and. And how, if you put people in a in a situation where they can't even dream of dreaming um, of a better life and of a solution and of peace, um, you you're never going to get anywhere. Um, and if you treat anyone on earth with constant suspicion then you're never going to get anywhere because mutual suspicion is what leads to all the shit, you know, the war, the the arms race, which is just mutual suspicion. If you assume you've got an enemy and you tool up to defend yourself, then that enemy assumes you're its enemy and, and on it goes. You, you need, you know, the key left in the outside of the unlocked door yeah. at some point. Um. So anyway, I'd written that song and to this day, of course, it still weighs very heavily um, on, on, on my conscience because I, to this day, I, I still, there's still a part of me that there's still that voice inside me that says, what, what right have you got to even comment on this? Um, you know, and to turn what is a tragedy into a piece of drama or art. Have you got the right to do that? Um, my only answer would be that I did my best with it and I tried to say something positive and that um, 
it is something I I believe is a tragedy and, and, and I want to help with. Um, so anyway, having having written that song and recorded it and put it out there in uh, 2012 on, on Sounds That Can't Be Made, we then, I can't remember how long after it, it, it was, but it probably wasn't that long after, we went and did Cruise to the Edge, um, that yes, cruising, the prog cruise in the Caribbean. And while I was on the boat grooving around, I ran into someone who says, oh, we've got a friend and he he really wants to meet you because he used to patrol Gaza with a gun when he was young. And he thinks you're, you've got it spot on. And he left Israel for the very reason that you wrote the song, uh, that he was ashamed um, and that he thinks the situation is fucked up mm. and unfair. And um, I said, well, I would I would love to talk to him. And, and he was Aaron Hertz and that's how we met. And um, it became apparent immediately that he was a lovely guy and that we, we wouldn't have any trouble having a long conversation. So I invited him to breakfast the next day and we sat together and had breakfast and he told me about his life. He said he grew up in Israel and, uh, and you know, as uh, as all Israeli kids, uh, that they have to serve in the military for a, a period of time. So he found himself on the street with a, with an automatic weapon you know, and little boys throwing rocks at him. Yeah. You know, um, and he said the way that the military behaved was, you know, really upset him and the mm. way they treated those kids because they did treat them as lesser beings. Um, and he was... He was ashamed, and he, he he still goes back there. He still goes back to 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 Gaza and plants trees and tries to do good things, and you know he does beautiful things when he goes. Him and his sister go back, and they they go in they they go into Gaza with um, um, certain charities. I think there's Beit Salem. Um, might be them, but there's a few charities in Israel that that that, that um, object strongly to to the the policy of 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 Israel and the way the way that, that the Palestinians are treated and protest and try to help. So you can't you can't generalize. There's some you know there, there's a lot of people in Israel who are every bit as outraged by their own country's treatment of the Palestinians as, you know, more so than the song I wrote. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of good guys out there trying to change things for the better. There's, there's, there's a reason for optimism. And I've been a, I've been a supporter of a, a little school in, in Bethlehem called Hope Flowers which is run by a guy who who was actually arrested and tortured uh, by Israelis, a Palestinian guy, um, who decided that the only way forward was was to teach the children to live peaceably together. And he runs a he runs a school for war damaged kids to try and break that 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 cycle of um, of violence and to teach them to to teach them and to heal them. Uh, and it's a beautiful little school, doing great work, and I I, I support it and uh, contribute money to it. So I had breakfast with Oren, um, and we we became friends, and we we still are. And then <laughs> and then he came to Port Zealand. I introduced him to my family. And he became really good friends with my family and then went to Doncaster and visited them. And he's now, <laughs> he's now kind of family, really. He lives, he's gay, he lives in Miami and um, <laughs> he keeps turning up in Yorkshire. <laughs> he's a singular human being. he joins the family being. quiz. He joins the family quiz every Sunday. <laughs> he's a singular human being.
he is he's, he's a bit special yeah well i think i think you keep dragging people into the family quiz don't you i mean i mean you know we're starting to feel like a little bit like family there's 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 rick that that appears and is 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 feeling a bit like family you you just drag these people in well i don't think i can take all the credit for that i th- i think i have a very welcoming family you do you know it's uh they're, they're a good bunch and uh they're a sensitive bunch, you know. They're no good folk when they come across them. Mm. That's uh, that's it. Mm, they are. They're a fantastic bunch. They really are. So going back then, uh, a couple of things dawned on me as we were talking or as I was listening to you. Um, you said most of the criticism you had uh, came from either Europe or the US. Was it Was it factual criticism or was it just that people weren't necessarily disagreeing with what you were saying, they just didn't like to be... To, to effectively think about what you were saying? I think some of it was knee-jerk. Yeah. You know, um, some of it... I mean, there was one particular hammering I took uh, before the song was out right. from a woman in France who, who, who'd learned that we were writing a song called Gaza and had already made it. She hadn't... She couldn't have heard the lyrics. Um, and... Uh, she weighed in with a lot of vitriol. Um, how very dare you? Um, before she'd even heard the song. Um, so that was, you know, some of it was knee-jerk. Um, but then once the song was out, you say, was it factual? The problem with that region is everybody's got their own facts. So it was and it wasn't. So, you know, I'd get, for instance, I'd get, just trying to cast my mind back, but uh, but one particular guy said, there's no such thing as Palestine. There's no such thing as Palestinians. And if you, blah, 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 history will show you that Palestine doesn't exist in the first place and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, which is... I don't know if you can argue with that, but there's, a, there's, you know, the Balfour Declaration that started this whole thing off in 1917, which was a, a letter from Lord Balfour to Lord Rothschild when the British were first mooting the idea of returning Jews to that part of the world to create a homeland. It talks about Palestine. So it existed then. <laughs> so, so where's it gone? <laughs> but, you know, a lot of these people start pointing at books that are 3,000 years old and saying, listen, we've got every right to this, that, and the other. It's very hard to argue with, with that. You know, once you get into doctrine and the Old Testament, and what are you going to do? Hmm. Well, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in that particular tone that doesn't hold up well to time. So uh, you know, you've got to be a bit careful going that far back, I guess. Yeah, but you know, the the the, the Jewish right to that part of the world is is all hmm. in those books, hmm. um, and and so it, it it's it's hard to 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 argue with it. But then uh, where do you stop, you know? As I've often said, the the whole notion of of statehood and ownership of land is absurd in the first place. You know, how can you take a billion-year-old planet when you're around for 60 years yourself and say, well, this bit's mine? This bit's mine. It's absurd. And, uh, you know, and how can you draw a line in the... On the planet and go. Okay, everything on this side of the line, we're going to wave this coloured flag, and then when we cross over the line, we're going to wave this coloured flag and call this another country. It's just—it's all absurd. Um, but there we are. Mm. Um, it was interesting that people suggested that you shouldn't do that or shouldn't weigh in because I don't know why just because it's a song or a piece of music, it's less, you have less scope to comment in the way that if you'd made a documentary or a film, nobody would 
nobody would suggest that was a topic that you couldn't cover. And it, and it doesn't seem to make sense that just because it's a song, somehow different rules apply. Yeah, mate. I mean, you the the thing is, we've got fans, and maybe um, maybe somebody who makes a documentary, a, a director who makes a documentary, maybe he doesn't have a fan base. Yeah, who are all engaged um, in 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 what he produces and and what he believes in. Um. So he hasn't got anyone to betray in a way, whereas we've got fans who are passionate about what we do and the music we make. And so if I go and open my mouth and say something that that they disagree with, they're suddenly faced with, um, I guess, a feeling of betrayal, you know. I... I, I, I I'm a fan of I'm a I'm a fan of this guy, and he's gone and slapped me in the face, and I, and I think so. So I think that's what it is. It, it's a feeling that um, you know, it's like when when John took up with Yoko, a lot of people were really pissed off about it. I mean, he was just a guy going off with a woman. But because they were all Beatles fans and they wanted John to be a certain thing, they decided yeah. he was a certain thing and he was theirs and they loved him, um, that when he did things they couldn't cope with or disagreed with, you know, they were re- they felt betrayed by him and they, they, so they got angry. Uh, but the fact fact is he was just a guy living his life and it didn't have anything to do with them. But that's the very same thing that makes someone a fan in the first place is, I mean, that's the upside of it is that you have all this support and reverence and belief. But the downside of it is that if you do or say anything to disappoint those people, they're going to get angry because they're going to feel betrayed by you. Um, You said that, I think I heard you say that the music came first. Is that right? Had you not you'd not been thinking about writing about this particular topic then, or um... no, I'd 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 got some bits and bobs, you know. I'd got some some things, you know, because I'd seen I'd seen documentaries and I'd 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 heard about the situation there. And so I had, I'd got a few sketches, and then on one particular day, the band were jamming something which felt very Arabic, hmm. and and the way we write is that when the band's jamming, I'm I'm scrabbling around in my in these days in my laptop for anything that might work with what they're doing. So if they're if they're doing something psychedelic, I'll I'll go scrabbling around for something mind expanding. And if they're doing something uh, that sounds like the end of the world, I'll go looking for something apocalyptic. And it, and if they're doing something that sounds like a love song, I'll I'll, I'll see if I've got something. Um, so I'm just you know when the band's jamming in the room, I'm scrabbling around for something that might work. And I think I think they were jamming the bam 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 bam, and I was young and I sing like again. So I was trying to hang an Arabic melody, um, or my idea of one, on on what they were doing, and you know, to my horror. <laughs> <laughs> it worked really well, and the band got all excited about it. And then I realised I was going to have to, you know, I kept hoping that it would go in the bin at some point, you know, as as ideas often do when we're working on them. I think almost praying that it would go in the bin, and it just got stronger and stronger. <laughs> and uh, and Gaza came very late to the table when we were writing sounds that can't be made. I think we were already into recording the album. 
when the jams that, that Gaza came from happened and everyone came to the conclusion this was too strong to leave off. And so then I had the, the dilemma of how do I write, the, how, do I, how do I stitch this song together with any authority? Um, which led me to that process I already talked about. I love, I love the idea of you scrabbling around for things in your laptop, depending on the mood. Where did I put apocalyptic? Where, have I, where exactly. did I file apocalyptic? Yeah. Where's death and water? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what have I done with Mr. Cool Trip? This sounds psychedelic. <laughs> you know, so I do, I have them all up. I have, you know, I'll maybe have 20, 20 odd lyrics up on the screen at once and I'll be, I'll be trying to find them. Um, while while about you know in the moment and quite often by the time i've found them mark kelly's lost interest and stopped playing it because he (laughs) hasn't got much of an attention span right and i suppose he's but he's brilliant how were the band about this then lyrically because this this is something the band i guess you know some some stuff not saying the band could be indifferent to, but in reality, if there's a lyric that's not particularly contentious, then I suppose the band could go either way on it. But how is everybody else about this? Because this is this does take you into a space, doesn't it? Yeah, they they were. I don't think any one of the the boys at any point said, "Well, this is a hot potato. We shouldn't do it." Mm. They all said, "This is a hot potato," but I think what you're saying is spot on. Crack on. Mm. Um, they probably said that in the full knowledge that it was my neck. <laughs> Not but nobody objected, you know. No, no one said, oh, don't know about this. Everybody said, well, this needs saying. You know, crack on and crack on and say it. And, and, and so then I just had to be certain that I could stand by every word of it. And you said it came together late in the in the in within the context of that album. Did it come together fairly quickly then, by your standards, as in the band's standards? I I can't honestly remember. It must have done. It must have done. Yeah, we the the various sections of the song, musically and lyrically, um, just seemed to emerge um, fairly rapidly. Um, what tends to happen anyway in the writing process is that the the deeper we get into it and the further we get into it, the jams tend to produce more stuff. And that's been happening this time as well. Um I'm going I'll be going into the studio today and I'll only be in there for twenty or thirty minutes. Because we've we've learned over the years that it's that first twenty or thirty minutes that that produce the you know the the good stuff if anything's going to happen it happens in the first 20 or 30 and after that you're wasting your time um but we are at the point now where we're we're assembling songs for the new album and yet you know the jams are really producing a lot of you know a rich a, a, a rich interesting ideas and lots of them so I think we were at that point in sounds that can't be made where, you know, jamming is a bit like mining. You kind of dig through all this shale, sometimes for months, and you eventually hit a seam and then, then you know, one good thing after another seems to fly out of the band. And we've arrived at that point, I think, we've hit the seam. And, and so even though we should really stop jamming now and work on the record... Mike won't let us stop because he knows that that uh, a diamond might might come out, um, and we were at that stage. So, you know, the nothing's ever simple. That's for sure. That section, the two, it just ain't right. It just ain't right. The re- the really emotional part of the song um, that came out of a jam, pr- probably only a couple of weeks after, and all mm. these all these lovely little moments were happening. And then that strange moment at the end with the the funny sequence and the um, it's like a nightmare rose up, um, slouching towards Bethlehem, which is um, 
a nod to uh, the second coming by WB Yeats. What rough beast, it's how come round at last. Slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. At, at this at this creature, this monster, this dark force. Um, and um, good old Donald Trump moved the US Embassy, didn't he, to Jerusalem. And, uh, made everything worse. Mm. Um, bless him. Bless him. Right, uh, we'll take a breath and we'll head into a bit of head into a bit of diary. That's the uh, that's the uh, fascinating that story. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and you know, I know it's a, a probably slightly more serious in tone than than, than a normal TCD episode, but I think it's a, a story that's really worth you know going over. But we'll we'll get onto a bit of diary. Um, Are you? Which is which is great because it's going to take us to Nice. Uh, you're out of Italy. You've escaped. Uh, we've got we've got a, a couple of other things that are going to go on. Right, we've uh, escaped. We've and, got Zurich, and now we're on. oh, that's a lovely gig that Theatre Verdure. We always used to have great shows there. Brilliant. So after the drama of Italy, I think it's a nice couple of days that we're gonna gonna cover. So I'll I'll hand over to you. Righty ho, here it comes. Sunday, 17th of April, Zurich, Congress Spirgarten. Got up after a good 12 hours sleep and went downstairs and had a couple of coffees. The reception staff had cheered up to the point of mere indifference. Spent an hour or so trying to finish my review thing for Music Express. I didn't like any other music on the cassettes apart from an artist or band called Kent who I have never heard of before or since, and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, which was interesting, and locking myself out of my room. Checked out and arrived at the gig around two in the afternoon, hanging around in catering and the dressing room area for hours. We're not in the centre of Zurich here and it's Sunday, so there's not much point in leaving the venue. The hall is wood panelled from floor to ceiling and reminds me of a school assembly hall. Priv hates it during sound check. The hard acoustic surfaces make it impossible to control the sound out front. This always improves with people in the hall, so we crossed our fingers and hoped for the best. Around early evening, Gabby Weiss, our good friend from EMI, popped in to say hello. She said she's disappointed with the airplay. What's new? The mood among the band became subdued as, once more, we privately lament the utter indifferent stroke hostile response our music seems to get from media generally. I know I'm biased, but surely we deserve better. Depressed and frustrated, I think we all went on stage determined to prove ourselves and consequently, and with a little help from a warm and interested Swiss audience, we had a great night. The band seemed relaxed but tight, and I managed to stay inside the words and the music. The enforced night off had rested my body and voice, and I can't remember singing Brave better. At the end of the evening, Pete came off stage and said, I think we all needed that. He was damned right. I was going overnight to Nice along with Pete, so we had a beer in the bar with EMI Switzerland and Louise Vase, who had flown in from London. Set to lose and climbed aboard the bus, soon to be tucked up and dreaming of Nice. Monday, 18th of April. Nice, Theatre de Verdure. It means theatre in the garden. Drifted in and out of sleep, imagining being in tunnels under mountains and then across northern Italy, heading south and then west from the Italian to French Riviera. At 8.30, when I decided I might get up, the bus was still moving, although I guessed from the sporadic motion that we must be in a town. I climbed out of my bunk to discover Brian, our lighting tech, at the rear lounge, gazing out of a side window at the sea, and I joined him to enjoy the visual feast of the Côte d'Azur on the outskirts of Nice. Before long, we were on the Promenade des Anglais, 
the famous seafront in the centre of this romantic and decadent city, outside the Theatre de Verdure. A huge circus tent, permanently standing in a little park by the Meridian Hotel. I reached for my sunglasses and climbed down into a sunny morning to be greeted by Jeanne, an extraordinarily likeable chap who is Gerard Drouot's man in Nice, who I remember well from previous shows here. The two previous shows were, I remember, terrific events. There's something about the audiences in France that is soulful and spiritually supportive, as well as enthusiastic. No matter how much of myself I give them, they always seem to give back more. I always get emotional in France. It was great to be back. Chatted with Jeanne and Pete, then went inside to find Emma and Helen and get the kettle on. Ate a croissant and drank Helen's tea before going off to the Holiday Inn to check in. Freshened up and went walking down to the old town with Pete tea to drink cappuccinos by the palm tree-lined fountains. I was trying to find the cafe where I'd sat in the sun last time I was here. We eventually found the spot where I had sat, but unfortunately the cafe was no more, so we went to the place next door. Shame. After pizza and coffee, we took a walk through the old town and found a flea market full of second-hand odds and sods. I bought some shells fossilised in sandstone, a pot warmer and some quartz agate crystal for Sophie. Pete found a pine cone on a wall and gave it to me for the kids. It was dripping with pine sap, which ended up all over the lapels of my jacket. Spent half an hour wrestling with washing up liquid and serviettes until said lapels were semi-restored, then went off in search of a bank. Passed by a troupe of Russian street musicians playing traditional folk tunes on balalaika, bass balalaika and accordion. They were very accomplished musicians. There was a sign in French saying that they were students of the Moscow Academy, so I invited them to the show. They each viewed me with suspicion, showing little interest. Fair enough. Came back to the venue and sound-checked. We all know from experience that the sound here will be fine, so we were line-checking more than anything else. John A had arrived, so we talked about business. Alone again in the lap of luxury is about to be released as a single, so I'm naturally nervous. On the way back from the sound check to the hotel, I watched the rough cut of the video. The opening shots of me are pretty awful. I'm going to have to spend my day off tomorrow on the phone trying to sort it all out. I hate the whole process of releasing singles. It serves as no more than a reminder of how much we are despised by the media. Never mind. In my view, we have all the things that are genuinely worthwhile. I wouldn't swap ten of the people who were to come to our niece show later today for a hundred, you guys are great, I heard you on the radio, types. Come to think of it, I wouldn't swap one of them. For me, this was to be one of the best audiences ever. I was expecting much from this crowd for reasons I've already described, but tonight's reaction was to far exceed my expectations. At times, the right times, the crowd noise was painful. Momentarily, I wished I could have been across the road by the sea just to hear what it sounded like from a distance. I'm sure they could be heard all over Nice. We left the stage feeling as high as kites. Thank you, Nice. After the show, I showered and chatted to Anne Lawler, who had flown over for the show. We signed stuff on the way out of the back door to the minibus, and I got kissed a lot. Back at the hotel, everyone agreed to meet up at a bar in town. I walked over there with Steve R, where the French fan club were waiting. No one else turned up, so Steve and I had a beer and returned to the hotel. Tuesday, 19th of April. Nice, day off. Woken up by Nick, telling me there was a VHS player on its way to my room. I wanted to go through the lap of luxury video in order to try and improve it, before the online edit tomorrow. Found EMI in London trying to get hold of someone who could help. John popped in on his way to check out of the hotel to tell me it was unlikely that EMI would allow any further spending on the video, so anything I wanted to change would have to be arranged directly with the editor and done online. 
John returned to London and said he would call me late afternoon with a number for the editor. I called Trudy from video at EMI, who had sent the rough cut through for approval and was told she was away for the rest of the week. Great. I walked to the window to take some fresh air and, as I opened the panel, there was a cheer from a small group of fans down in the street. I recognised some of them from last night. They waved for me to come down, so I went downstairs and asked them if they would like a preview of the next video. Took them up to my room to see the VHS, then downstairs to the cafe and bought them all a coffee. After they'd gone, I went for a walk through the old town and down the narrow alleys that form the street market. Once again, I had arrived too late for the restaurants to give me lunch, so I walked back to the hotel eating a baguette with tuna and mayonnaise. I'd hoped for a sunny day off in Nice, but it wasn't to be. At least it wasn't raining. When I arrived back at the hotel, the rest of the band were in reception, ready to leave. Nick was having yet more trouble with the minibus. The rear door handle had broken, so they were all waiting while he tried to sort it out. I was going overnight again with the crew direct to Geneva, whereas the band were driving to Lyon, staying there and finishing the journey tomorrow. Went back to my room and spoke to John, who was now back home in England. He gave me a number for Howard Myers, who was editing the video, and I managed to speak to him later in the afternoon. Howard was friendly and helpful and said he could make the necessary changes. Wes called to ask if I fancied going out for dinner, so we wandered back down into town and ate pepper steak. The crew bus left at nine from the Holiday Inn. I felt tired, so I went to bed around ten, Woke up at 1.30 feeling thirsty and went downstairs to raid the fridge. Jeff, Tim and Wes were watching Prime Suspect 3 on the TV and I ended up getting embroiled until 3.45. Returned to my bunk feeling stressed. It was quite a disturbing story about child abuse and a police cover-up. I lay awake thinking of Dizzy and the kids until around 6. Most of the time I'm OK, but in the early hours of this particular morning as I lay awake on my way once again under and over the Alps to Geneva, I began to wonder just how long I can go on living like this and how long my family can stand my prolonged absences. Wednesday, 20th of April. Geneva Palladium. It was around nine when the bus finally ground to a halt. I heard Smick already out of bed. He runs the production, so he's always first into the venue, having previously arranged load-in times by phone. I'd only had about four hours sleep, so I wasn't exactly quick to get up. When I staggered into the Palladium, I'd played here before with the Europeans, the first pieces of equipment were appearing in the hall from the truck outside. From an upstairs window, I watched ant-like teams of local tattooed crew, the people who unload and load the truck and work for a straight fee, supplied by the local promoter, wheeling large flight cases into the building while the catering girls were busy setting up the kitchen. Smick arranged for someone to take me to the Move and Pick Hotel by the airport. We're flying to Madrid tomorrow, so we're staying there. Checked in and went to my room to call Howard Myers at the online edit of the Lap of Luxury video. Everything seemed to be okay. Nick B rang to say that the minibus had broken down again yesterday and it took the boys nine hours to get to Lyon. He was trying to hire another vehicle, so they were going to be late. Looks like I made the right decision to hang on in Nice. I went to bed and slept until around two. Got up and took a cab back to the Palladium in Geneva where Mike Hunter was experiencing problems with the keyboard rig. He needed to borrow my laptop computer but it crashed when we tried to open the required program. Crashed <laughs> means the process by which a useful and interesting electronic computer becomes an unusual and impractical tea tray. I ate Emma's roast beef and went to the bus to relax. The chaps finally arrived around five, looking somewhat travel-weary. Sound checked and spent the spare hours before the show watching Mark and Steve trying to revive my laptop, pardon the expression. In doing so, they managed to also crash Wes's 
and then Nick Belshaw's desktop, which contains the tour itinerary and all the paperwork and information relating to the tour. Handy. The show went well in so much as nothing went wrong technically and the audience went away happy. But after Nice, just about anything was going to be an anticlimax by comparison. After the show, I felt utterly worn out, as usual. So I chatted briefly to a few people who were hanging around and then went back to the hotel with Ian. We were driven by a girl in a Volkswagen Golf who happened to know the promoter and had offered to help. Nice of her. And we're back. Um, and and that's a nice section of diary, that. I, uh, I haven't obviously had... It's weird, this, you know, because it's like being back at school. Because I read... I'm currently read. I've not read the diaries front to back. I dipped into them. Before we started this, I'd only dipped into them. And I'm now obviously reading the diary front to back at the steady rate of three and a half pages a week. Um, but then later on in the week, I get it read to me. Mm. So it's almost like being... It's like, it's like the, the end of the day. It's like carpet time at school <laughs> when, I, when I listen to the diary being read. Brilliant. <laughs> but it's, an, it's a nice section. Time. Yes, rug time. Rug time at school. <laughs> Provided you can balance at 90 degrees. You wouldn't want a lot of toddlers on there. There'd be a, a lot you, of mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd lose some of it. There's some liquids you'd lose in that, but you wouldn't lose everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yes, a nice section of diary. And, and two questions fall out of that section of diary for me. Uh, there's not a lot of contention in there. It's a nice couple of days. It's nothing, It's nothing, you know, particularly dramatic. But my two questions are, one's a statement, bloody hell, you like a flea market, don't you? <laughs> well, there is a nice market in Nice. There's a, there's a nice little back street that's just a, a block back from the... Um the Promenade des Anglais, um, and they do they do set up a little market. I think it's on Saturday afternoons, maybe twice a week. And uh, you know, the French, you just gotta love, you just gotta love the French. Um, they like a market, and they always they always sell interesting, interesting stuff. And mm. uh, me, I'm a I love it, you know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a browse through a bit of a bit of um, of an objet d'art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But one man's objet d'art is another man's tat, isn't it? I mean, are, are you, would that be fair? Yeah, but I would argue that French tat is better than ours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's le tat for a le start, tat. which always sounds better. <laughs> Donnez-moi le tat français, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> That's not the first time you've said that, is it? <laughs> Je suis un idiot anglais, mon français est terrible. How do you ask? Where? Have you seen my phone? <laughs> seen my sunglasses? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I think a pot warmer was amongst your purchases mm, this week. A trivet. A tri- what was it, a trivet? Yes, it was a trivet. Yeah, right, okay. a, a nice sort of cast aluminium. I don't know what happened to it. I think I think Lynetta discreetly slung it. <laughs> Does she do that with a lot of your purchases? <laughs> well, I think anyone who has a, a partner who's either female or gay um, mm. will will recognise that that stealthy process uh, through which things that you proudly display on a shelf or on a windowsill one day just vanish into a cupboard for a while. And then having, you know, having having sat in that cupboard for long enough for you not to go, hey, what happened to that? What, what, what happened? To, I, I like that. I like that. Well, I've just put it in the cupboard, darling. Uh, oh, it doesn't really go. And, the, the, you know, then there's a period of time during which it stays in the cupboard as a test uh, where you either take it back out of the cupboard and put it back on the shelf and go, I like this enough to take it back out of the cupboard and put it back on the shelf. And and if you can't summon up that passion or strength of feeling, then after a after a certain period of time in the cupboard, it goes to the tip. Yeah. 
It's the Oxfam cycle, isn't it? I think it's called the Oxfam cycle. Uh, Somebody then says, this cupboard's full of crap. Can we have a clear out? (laughs) Did did, did Lynette do what Alison used to do, where I would arrive home with something early in our relationship and Alison would actually make the effort to go, oh, that's really nice. That's really, I'm really interested in that. Where did you find that? To the point where now Alison just looks at something and just, you know, shows no interest or just talks. Yeah, yeah, we're at that point in our relationship yeah. where she just goes, hmm, <laughs> isn't this lovely, darling? Yeah. Mm. Oh, oh, well, cupboard. I'll give it a fortnight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if she goes over to get that cancer research bag that's just landed on the doorstep. <laughs> but um, Well, a lot of um, my interesting things are... You know, are like lampshades and light fittings, so they're physically screwed into the ceiling. <laughs> they're not so easy to shift. <laughs> Lynetta, where are you going with those three Phillips head screwdrivers? <laughs> oh, nothing. <laughs> um, the other thing that that struck me in the diary, and I've been meaning to mention this for a while because it's come up two or three times. You mention Emma's roast dinner, and you've mentioned roast <laughs> dinners on the road before. What is it about Emma's roast dinner? Well, this was a very long time ago, but Emma was um, Emma was our chef um, at that point. We we taken um, we took catering out on the road with us, so you know, and bands bands often do if they're touring at a certain level. Um, the crew don't really get to eat during the day unless you carry uh, someone with you who's going to cook and uh, and sit them down and feed them. And um, that's very important. And th- the pecking order tends to be that, 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 you know, it's important the crew get fed and being as there's catering out on the road, oh, all right, we'll feed the band as well then. That's how it tends to be. <laughs> so, so the band get to sit down and eat as well. Um, but the principal reason they're there is, is for the crew. Um, and uh, this particular chef, Emma, made great roast dinners. And um, so we used to look forward to them. It's as simple as that, really. Any other band favourites from catering? Anything that... Used to get everybody together. Um, just trying to think. No, really. I mean, Mosley's mad for a bread and butter pudding, so oh. he would begin campaigning for one of them at the beginning right. of a tour, and uh, at some point, one would materialise for him, which would be a red letter day. Uh, he'd always have a skip in his step on 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 those <laughs> days. <laughs> Me, Ali, anything, but but not much of it when I'm touring. Right. I tend to, uh, you know, I eat like a bird when I'm on tour because I can't stand going on stage with feeling full and, you know. So I, te- I tend not to eat much, really, which can be frustrating if, you, if you've got some great chef dishing out fabulous stuff and you, you can't really have it. Mm. You used to live on cappuccino, then? Yeah, and uh, cap- cappuccinos and club sandwiches in the middle of the day rather than eating dinner. Um, and then I have to discipline myself not to wire into the after-show pizza and sandwiches because that's going to, you know, then you're going to go to bed and lie on the bus with raging indigestion knowing it's all going to fat, feeling thoroughly ashamed of yourself. Um, but it's tricky when you're starving hungry. I get that. I get that. And there's a lovely little moment where you um, you you getting into Nice, and you went to sit in the rear lounge of the bus, and you just watched the ocean. I think, mm. and that must be nice to arrive in places because that'll be relatively early in the morning, I guess. Yeah. Oh God. I. I mean. I. I love it. I love. I, I've always loved the the romance of of traveling as you sleep waking up and getting up and and if you're lucky enough to be arriving in a, a jewel of a place like like um the Cote d'Azur then you get you know you get yourself upstairs and watch it all going on and you know you, you might watch the sun rising over the sea and 
Um, or you might you might be weaving your way through Monaco, looking down on all the yachts and the water, and those are those are magical moments. And you know, I'm all I always think, God, I'm lucky to do this for a living. Most most people save up all all, all year for the chance to to look at a vista like this, and uh, I'm I'm getting paid to look at it. Mm. Lucky me. Then I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get into town and get in front of a load of people who think I'm great. <laughs> That's not bad either. No, no. When you put it like that, it's not a bad way of spending your time, is it? No, no. It's 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 not a. Well, uh, what did Freddie say? But it's been no bed of roses, no pleasure cruise. He's right, but. Um, it is, it, you know, if if you're lucky enough and uh, and the hard work has paid off, of all the uh, of all the fire escapes you've carted Hammond organs up when you were when you were young with angry dogs biting at your heels, um, you know, if if you get to a point where, you know, where 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 we are now, then then it's it's worth it. It's more than worth it. Yeah, some of us only ever got as far as carting speakers up back staircases into clubs. Unfortunately, mm. that's about where it cut off for me, <laughs> really. So, yeah. yeah, not feeling quite as generous towards you as I was a minute and a half ago. Well, you know, there's, there's, you have to have a fair amount of talent, but you have to have a stack of luck. <laughs> Just twist the knife, just gently there. That's very kind of you. No, I do, I, no, I mean, you have to have a stack of luck. Right, okay. No, right. That's the thing. Yeah, Talent I, is I, not enough. Right, right. And if you don't have both, you really are shafted. <laughs> well, Madonna did all right. Man, she had yeah. a lot of luck. Yeah, yeah. Jedward, I suppose, is the is the... Is the answer to that, but there we are. Anyway, I think that brings us to about the end of forty-two. Uh, we've got a we've got a purple Q and A to record for the for the patrons, so oh. we ought to we ought to exit stage left and do that. Okay. Um. So I suppose I'll meet you in about thirty seconds on a different Zoom call. Okay. How lovely. Okay. You'll have you've got time for a pee. Oh, it's very kind of you, Bob. <laughs> Why, Bob? Uh, Bob Holness. <laughs> Can I have a pee, please, Bob? Oh, I see. God, that was obscure. That was nearly I... as obscure as your bloody quiz questions. Anyway, <laughs> I might put my quest. I might put my quiz questions in the show notes this week. <laughs> yeah. Best of luck, everybody. <laughs> right. I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> Toodaloo. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Bianca Clayson, Neil Dutton. Thank you, Ray Budowski, and Uwe Melchin. Matthew Saunders and Alison Warner and Simon Hickley and thank you Lorraine Thanks for subscribing, everybody. But one more thing before I go a shameless plug for the Christmas live stream. 
coming soon on DVD. But more exciting than that, it's available to rent on the space today. So go and have a look at Marillion.com. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.